Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. How we doing? Well, if you don't know me, my name is Sean, and I'm one of the pastors on our team, and I'm looking forward to spending some time talking about our passage in Luke today. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know uh, that we've actually had three guest speakers in a row, which is definitely an anomaly for us here at Antioch, not something that usually happens. But as I reflect back on each of those vo- these specific voices in particular... I know that I was challenged and inspired in unique ways. A couple weeks ago, Greg Boyd was here, and I didn't expect to get financial advice from Greg Boyd, but he showed us how to invest in the future kingdom today. John Huckins showed us how to be both watchful and whimsical in how we live our lives of following Jesus. And then last week, Todd still had the pleasure of preaching about how Jesus didn't come for peace, but for division. I was so glad to not have to preach that one myself, so I'll say he did a good job, but whatever. I just didn't have to do it. So we'll have one more guest speaker in a few weeks, longtime friend of Antioch, Donna Barber, and then we'll get to, you'll hear from me a few more times. Pastor Linda will be up, and then apparently there's this whole other guy who works here um, named Pete who's going to be coming back. I don't really remember much about him, what he looks like. I think he's looking, I actually saw him the other day. He's looking pretty good. Sabbatical looks good on him. And uh, we're excited to have him back. He is going to be preaching with us lakeside at fall camp. So make sure you plan to join us for our fall retreat at Big Lake. And it's, you know, we've been having conversations about this as a staff. It's funny that there are some of you that have been new with us here this summer. You don't even know who Pete is which is weird and wild and strange. Uh, And so we're excited for you to get to know Pete and understand why we love him, why the congregation loves him. So he'll be back in just a few weeks. And then the last thing I'll say before we dive into our text today uh, is just to mark for me, one of the giants of the faith, one of my all-time favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, passed away this week. I don't know if you know him. He died at the age of 96, it was peaceful. And if you haven't had a chance to read any of Beekner, I highly, highly encourage you to do so. His spiritual autobiography, some of his fiction, he has some devotionals, they're all great. I've actually ordered a few to add to the Antioch Library that will be here by the time you come back for church next week. I'm gonna share a, a few different Beekner quotes throughout our sermon today, just because I love him so much. But one of my favorite things that he says is this. He says, to be wise is to be eternally curious which I found to be both profound and true. So it's my hope today that we can approach our text with curiosity and hopefully see how we can approach our lives with curiosity as well. So as we've talked about before, we are still kind of kicking it here in the Gospel of Luke for the remainder of the summer, and we're on the same journey with Jesus up to Jerusalem. And one of the themes that we consistently see throughout the Gospel of Luke is the theme of divine mercy. And at the heart of what God is doing is what Jesus does in his ministry and the mercy of Jesus. For Luke, following Jesus requires that believers emulate that divine mercy that's enacted through Jesus' life and his ministry and that even perseveres in the face of hostility. It was before our lectionary text started uh, after Pentecost, but back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus announces his mission in this gospel. Somewhat like our text today, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he described his mission as one of human liberation and flourishing. 
Quoting the book of Isaiah, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus declares this as his mission, and thus far as we've seen in Luke, and we'll see more as we go, that he grants healing and liberation to those struggling for resources, for those who are dealing with incarceration, for those with medical maladies. Anyone who is not able to flourish, Jesus is about setting them free. Luke makes it clear that Jesus is Israel's deliverer. He is a spirit-filled teacher whose words and deeds are both prophetic and emancipatory. Much of the episodes we learn about in Jesus' life point back to this mission statement and this manifesto of liberation. So in our text today, we learn about an unnamed woman. The passage tells us that a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. In these small communities, the woman was probably well-known. Everyone knew who she was. She had lived her life the last 18 years you know, totally bent over, looking down at the ground. I'm sure that she stood out in the community. Physically, aside from the obvious challenges, uh, this type of injury would also come with severe neck pain, fatigue, difficulty breathing. She probably had heart problems because of circulation issues. Emotionally, I'm sure that it came with feelings of frustration, feelings of vulnerability, feelings of isolation, as if everyone is looking at you. I mean, think about it. For, for 18 years, she has to strain to even see the sun, the sky, or the stars. She had probably become accustomed to looking down, of having to turn from side to side just to see what was right in front of her. And so I wonder if over the years she became resigned or, you know, again, accustomed to this long and serious illness. If you notice when Marcia read the text for us this morning, this woman did not ask for healing from Jesus. She wasn't as bold as the, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who just, who just grabbed Jesus on her own. Uh, no one speaks up for the woman today, like Jairus fell at Jesus' feet on behalf of his daughter and begged for healing. The text does not tell us that the woman or anyone else asks for Jesus to heal her. Something to note, but we're going to put a pin in that for now. Because the beginning of our text also tells us when this healing occurred. Verse 10 says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And the timing of this healing on the Sabbath will instigate one of the main points of conflict in our story today. Now, Sabbath is something we talk about fairly regularly here at Antioch. It's one of our six biblical practices. You can see it on the wall back there. But I want to touch on a few things. There are two main ways in which the Old Testament offers up kind of a, a rationale for Sabbath, why we do it. One emphasis urges Israel to rest from all work because God crowns creation with a holy day of rest. In this case, we see the Sabbath as the pinnacle of creation. The Lord rests from the work of creation. He completes creation with a day of rest. Therefore, the people of Israel should do the same, emulate God's day of rest and not work. Well, the Old Testament has a second way of emphasizing Sabbath, and that is as a weekly day of remembrance, to observe the day and to keep it holy in observance as, as a practice of holiness 
as, as a reminder of the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This is a, a way of practicing Sabbath. It's a practice of holiness as people undertake a holy work. And so whether it is kind of this complete rest, this first emphasis, this active remembrance, we know in Scripture that there is a commandment to not work on the Sabbath. It forbids work on the Sabbath. But the problem is, it doesn't really say what work is. What does work mean if we're not allowed to do it? All throughout history, people have tried to understand what work truly means. What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? How, you know, how, how can I get close to the line? I want to do as much as I can. And so as you try to figure it out, uh, there's something called the Mishnah. It's a collection of teachings about the Torah. It's known as the Oral Torah. And it seeks to answer questions like this. When the Torah doesn't fully specify, the Mishnah fills in the gap as uh, leaders were, give their opinion on things. There's a commentary for things that aren't specifically mentioned in the Torah. In one of the sections of the Mishnah on the Sabbath, it lists 39 different kinds of work that are forbidden on the Sabbath. This includes sowing, like sowing seeds, baking, hunting, writing, building, even leading from one place to another. That is considered work. This last one, if you remember from when Marsha read the text, is highlighted by Jesus as an example when he talks about leading an animal to get water. So point being, with all this kind of Sabbath conversations, whether it was human rest from working, keeping the holiness of the Sabbath, it was meant to uphold two of the pillars of the law, honor and worship of God and rendering justice to your neighbor. So in our healing story today, the question comes as to whether healing should be constituted as work on the Sabbath. How does it fit into those two categories? Verse 12 says, When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So we see this healing happens in two parts. In verse 12, Jesus pronounces her as released or set free from her infirmity. And note that language of release and freedom. But the healing is not manifest until Jesus puts his hands on her. So that's a two-parter. Beekner says, a miracle is when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A miracle is when one plus one equals a thousand. That's what Jesus does here. He, he brings healing in a miraculous way. It makes no sense how he does it. He speaks healing, one. He adds in the touching of healing, and somehow that equals her being free from her infirmity, equals a thousand. She doesn't ask for help in this instance, like we had said, so we're not quite sure why Jesus chooses to heal her. But if we think back to his mission and manifesto in Luke, we see that this miracle falls neatly into this motif of liberation. Jesus insists that she is to be set free. That's very intentional language here in verse 12. And verse 16 talks about releasing her from her bond. Again, these words are chosen carefully because Jesus is hearkening back to the commandment that connects Sabbath rest to Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. And part of what makes this story so fascinating is that Jesus doesn't pray for this woman as you or I might. He simply calls her over and says to her, you are set free from your infirmity. Her healing depends neither on her faith nor on the faith of others. 
which says a lot about miracles or those who push false prosperity gospel. If you just have more faith or enough faith, then you will be healed. The miracle rests in Jesus' hands alone. And this isn't the first time that Jesus violates Jewish custom. He touches an unclean person. He does it with a leper a few chapters ago in chapter 5. He does it with a, the widow's dead son in Nain. He himself, again, was touched by an unclean woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. All of these would be examples of breaking Jewish custom and breaking Jewish policy. But as we'll explore more in a moment, we see that Jesus does not let the threat of uncleanness or breaking the rules prevent him from his mission of redemption for the wounded and the marginalized. Just like he has touched before, Jesus is those he has touched before, Jesus' touch is their initial welcome back into community. Jesus does all he can to ensure that these folks are no longer marginalized or ostracized or on the outside of the community, but they are brought back in just by touching them. So surely everyone was happy about this, right? Uh, no, you know, every party is a pooper, and we uh, learn about one here in verse 14. Uh, says, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on one of those days, you know, not on the Sabbath. So a couple things here. I like to try and stick up for folks in Scripture that get a bad rap, okay? That's like part of my mission. Uh, and so if I were to try and do that for the synagogue leader here, I would say it can be hard to be the person who has to enforce the rules, okay? That's not a job that everyone wants to have. Uh, maybe you're a teacher or maybe you're a parent, right? And you feel like you got to say, no, don't do that. Like we don't touch hot things or you know, whatever it is. Or, or maybe you have been uh, an HOA president or something, right? Okay, you're like, all right, no, you can't put you know, you got to cut your grass or not do that in the front yard or, you know, there's paint chipping somewhere. It's reflecting poorly on the community, right? Uh, you have to be the bad guy or the bad gal. Uh, maybe you've been an umpire, right, or a referee or something, and we're not going to talk about the umpire who totally screwed Ben Little League, okay? But maybe you've been an umpire and you've had to be the bad person with that, or right? you've got to enforce the rules. Anybody watch Only Murders in the Building? Anybody watching that? Okay, we got season finale coming up. Bunny, she enforces the rules in the Arconia, right? Okay. So I don't think of myself as a huge stickler for the rules, okay? But we're coming up on two years in Ben now, and there are certain things you notice, all right? And I find myself very confused about the lack of rule following when it comes to one area. Parking. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Yes, okay, I, 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 got, a, I got a fist bump in the back. Uh, so you're going to have to explain this to me. In the places I've lived, you, you aren't supposed to park in the opposite direction of travel, okay? If you are driving this way, you park and you face your car this way. You don't go and park on the other side of the street. Just so, we live in a society here, people. You can't just park wherever you want. And Okay, I know that that's not a huge deal. But the other one I am always struck by, there seems to be no concern for parking in front of fire hydrants in Bend. Has anybody else noticed that? Are you the fire hydrant parking people? Because there's like one right outside my house. There's a car parked there every day. And it's always, always parking in front of the fire hydrant. I, 
This is a law in Oregon, right? You should not park in front of fire hydrants. Okay, well, I, I, I'll say I'm a stickler for that. I'm gonna start calling people. I'm calling you out if you park in front of fire hydrants. I know we got some firefighters here at Antioch. Back me up on this one. But I feel like I'm turning into a synagogue leader every time someone parks in front of my house in front of the fire hydrant. Like, I'll start calling some people. But all to say, you know, sometimes you gotta be the person who sticks up for the rules. And it can be hard to be that person. But the synagogue leader still kind of sucks, okay? He, he, he doesn't really get it. It's hard to stick up for the, if you take the best view, you could say that he's trying to follow the rules, trying to be faithful to what he thinks is right. But even then, that's being pretty generous because he is, at best, incredibly callous to what is going on. Because he basically asked the question, surely this woman can wait one more day. I mean, what's one more day, right? You know, we got to keep the rules of the Sabbath, people. She can wait one more day. This is more important. And this is when we see it's a lot easier to counsel someone else to be patient. It's a lot easier. Why don't you just wait one more day? I mean, I know it's been 18 years, but one more day. What could one more day be, right? When you tell someone else to be patient, that is a lot easier because rules are more likely to be considered reasonable when they do not affect the rule enforcer. Right? You found that to be true in your experience? This synagogue leader has not been looking down at the ground for 18 years. Of course, he would say, what is the rush? It doesn't affect him personally. And I think this is when we get into that idea that people's fervor about rules tends to become more flexible when the weight of the rule presses heavily on them or someone close to them. You might change your mind about a rule that seemed so clear or that was definitely a policy or a law or whatever it was. Because we begin to see that Sabbath observance for this leader was not about rest or holiness or honoring God or providing justice for the neighbor, but it was a system of control get to decide who did what, because this leader and for other leaders that always seem to be around in the Gospels as foils to Jesus' work, doing good is not the point here. It's about protecting the status quo, protecting and conserving their power. It's about maintaining social order. Uh, Frederick Douglass talked about this control of worship on the Sabbath in his experience in the slaveholding South. He said that his supposedly Christian masters forbid he and the other slaves from their Sunday worship, learning how to read the word of God. Instead, they encouraged them to spend their time wrestling or boxing or even provided them whiskey to be drinking instead because slaves following Jesus as the deliverer was a threat to their social order. Rodney Sadler is a professor and a theologian and the director for the Center for Justice and Reconciliation at Union Seminary, and he talks about the parallels between these two stories. He says the control of Sabbath practice in both instances represents a convenient way of maintaining an oppressive system whereby some people are forced to endure perpetual suffering by others who are more concerned with sustaining a system that benefits them and alleviating the burdens of those it cripples. And despite what this synagogue leader said and tries to accuse Jesus of, Jesus would say that he never actually broke the Sabbath. He may have broken these kind of extra-biblical interpretations on what work or the Sabbath is, but even that stands on flimsy ground. Because in Jesus' view, since the Sabbath law commemorates and celebrates Israel's liberation, it should be a day for enacting and not inhibiting the present-day liberation of God's people. 
What could be more honoring in marking the liberation of God's people than releasing one of those people to walk in freedom today? We see Jesus doesn't abolish the Sabbath commandment. Instead, he follows it faithfully. And who would know better than Jesus? In Luke 6, he's described as the Lord of the Sabbath. But we see in Jesus a compassion so deep and an acknowledgement that the care of your neighbor is a religious virtue that takes precedence over any rites or rituals or social systems or politically correct opinions. Because for Jesus, love of neighbor is always first. He chooses to lead with curiosity and not with condemnation. He chooses to rush to grace rather than to rush to judgment. Because Jesus isn't happy with the synagogue leader and those who are part of his crew, those folks like him. In verse 15, he calls them hypocrites. He says that they have a double standard. They do one thing themselves, and yet they want to stop him from doing something that is no different, yet even more appropriate and important. Jesus says to them, you, you say it's okay to untie an animal that needs water to lead them from one place to another, also against the policies. How much more should I untie a woman, a daughter of the covenant? How much more important is that? And, and what better day to do it than on the Sabbath, the day that marks our people's liberation? He says, you are trying to make the rules not apply to you. I'll show you what I think about your rules. Because we see here that Jesus chooses people over policy. He chooses people over policy. Whether it's throughout Luke, the other gospels, across the litany of scripture, God's focus is people over policy. Jesus serves for us as the ultimate example of compassion and empathy for us to follow. That if we can take the posture of people over policies at all times when we approach every person with grace and empathy and understanding. Like Jesus, we can look beyond guidelines about what is acceptable on the Sabbath so that we can live this way in other areas of our lives. And, you know, one word on looking over policy and rules. Uh, just because you don't like a rule or policy means you, doesn't mean you get to ignore it, okay? Uh, a good measuring stick of whether uh, ignoring a policy is the right idea is if it helps you love your neighbor more. If it's a selfless opportunity to love your neighbor more, that might be in the right spot. It's not merely a selfish chance, excuse me, to ignore something you don't want to do for personal, political, or whatever other motivations. It's not actually about love of neighbor. You might be missing the mark. So a couple examples. Uh, so we often hear news stories of of Christians across the world uh, sharing the good news of Jesus uh, with people all around the world. And oftentimes this happens in places where it might be against the law, maybe literally against the law, or you know, there might be some kind of guidelines in place that people might be shunned or arrested. They might be forced to leave a certain area or a country. In these scenarios, we can recognize that people over policy is important. No matter what policies may be in place in other places around the world, we believe it is best for people to experience the good news of Jesus in spite of it. Hopefully that's done in a healthy way. And it might be easy for some of us to say, yes, of course, of course we would choose people over policy in that instance. 
So let's take another example. Uh, I think about uh, Pastor Pete. He wrote uh, an op-ed in the Ben Bulletin about immigration. In that article, Pete, he begins with a disclaimer that immigration is a complex issue. Faithful Christians have come to differing conclusions about the best ways to improve our immigration system, and I'm okay with that. But what Pete also talks about is that he quotes a, a study, a Public Religion Research Institute report, that says, while most Americans agree that immigrants are good for our nation and society, at 53%, white evangelical Protestants are the only religious group in America to hold a majority belief that immigrants are a threat to our society and way of life. As Pete says in that article, I'm not okay with that. He talks about how God's command to love and to care for immigrants is the second most frequent command in the Old Testament, that compassion, hospitality towards immigrants is essential to how God sees the world. So Pete says this, so let's examine how closely our hearts align with his. When we hear an event like last Wednesday, acknowledging that we may not have all the details, to whom is our heart most easily drawn? Is our first thought towards our migrant neighbors one of affection and compassion, or are we among those who consider them a threat to our country and comfort? To me, this is how you put people over policy. Policy here is complicated and, com com and controversial. I get that. I'm not saying there is an easy solution, but this, to me, it is, is an example of compassion over condemnation. As Christians, we can totally disagree on policy but we cannot disagree on our posture towards people. And that's one of love. Now, Jesus still holds that there are key truths and important laws and following God's way is involved in that, but he leads with compassion and curiosity. In our story today, he chooses to identify with the woman rather than the synagogue leader as though her experience was his own. And we must choose to do the same. Just after our text today, there are two parables, and although our NIV translation doesn't say it, verse 18 continues the story. It says, therefore, Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? So kind of an explanation of what's gone on here. Jesus uses the examples of a mustard seed, and then again, uh, like yeast in a dough. So in explaining what he has just done, Jesus shows how he takes something seemingly small and insignificant, like a mustard seed or yeast or one woman in one synagogue, and when combined with God's loving and transforming power, it becomes a vessel to further God's kingdom. Our story seems to anticipate these questions and provides a picture of what the ultimate reign of God will be like. Because where Jesus is, the kingdom is. Where Jesus is, things are beginning to be made right. His ministry is a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Because in this kingdom, the world will be repaired. There will be no more blinding. There will blindness. There will be no sickness. We see that when Jesus sows the seeds of the kingdom, nobody knows what the result is going to be. I imagine Jesus could have had a better marketing or distribution strategy than going around healing one person at a time in a synagogue on the Sabbath. But what we see in the healing of the woman today is that every time you break the chains that have tied people up, this is another victory won that will have impactful repercussions in the kingdom to come. The woman is restored. The community begins to be restored. Verse 17 tells us the whole crowd was rejoicing because this woman represents anything that robs us 
from God's full life that he has for us and the liberation that comes and is found in Jesus. In Luke 8, we hear of the 12 disciples traveling with Jesus in Galilee, as well as, and I'm quoting here, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. It lists Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, many others who were providing for Jesus and his ministry out of their own means. It's this group of women who accompanied Jesus to the crucifixion. They bear witness to the male disciples. And the woman from our story today would surely be added to this list, that she was healed by Jesus. She would have been added to this list of women who had been cured. And while we don't get an epilogue to this story, I know that whether she was actively involved in Jesus' ministry or not, she advanced the kingdom by having been touched by Jesus, by walking upright and praising God. Beekner says this, but it could have easily been what Jesus said to this woman too, says, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen, but don't be afraid. I am with you, nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe, I love you. Jesus says the same thing to you and to me, and it's up to us to catch on to his mission and manifesto and join him in his work of liberation and restoration and the pouring out of divine mercy. And so I have to ask myself, and I hope you'll ask yourself as well, if Jesus puts people over policy, how can I do that in my life? What are the areas I'm putting policy or guidelines or whatever it is over the people that I encounter? What are the ways in which I can do that in my work, my civic engagement, in how I treat others? If Jesus' mission is to bring good news to the poor, the incarcerated, those who struggle with physical challenge, all who are oppressed, all who need liberation, what am I doing to aid in that? And those are helpful categories to start from, the list there. But we know that just about everyone that we meet feels stuck or bound or trapped in some way. How can we emulate Jesus and offer those in our life who need freedom from shame, who need liberation from feeling inadequate, who just need an opportunity to be loved? As we mentioned before, Jesus offered healing without being asked because he knew what this woman needed. Now, don't be weird and be overly intrusive in strangers' lives and go around doing this, but what might it look like for you to anticipate the needs of those who are already in your lives and offer them what they need most? Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my favorite preachers, and she puts it like this. She says, the only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor because Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. How can you go from this place and do that today? Whether it's religion, policies, politics, what do you need to make sure never gets in the way of emulating Jesus' love of neighbor? What would it look like for you to rush to grace instead of rushing to judgment? How might your life be different if you approached others with endless curiosity instead of condemnation? Because I think that it will make all the difference in the world and eventually all the difference in the kingdom as it's coming today. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who exude empathy, who cling to compassion, and always choose people over policy. Amen.